0: what I want to do. I want to tell you a story. And as I tell you this story, I'm then going to pray, and we're going to get into the message time. But the story is going to set up where we're going as a church for the next six weeks into our summer. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was in Colorado at a gathering of businessmen that was put on by a very well-known Christian youth organization. It was a two-night, three-day event. And they took all these Christian businessmen away to try to share with them what's going on with this Christian youth organization to try to get them to invest more money into it, and some had already been investing pretty heavily as it was. So was kind of a retreat weekend to talk about uh, this Christian youth organization. And the very first night, the president of this youth ministry stood up and he said something very simple but very profound that, that really got me thinking deeply about our church in our 50th year, even though that was not at all on his radar. And he basically said this. He said, here's the one thing that I know about our youth ministry, and that is, it works. After 71 years of pouring into youth from all different cultures spanning multiple generations throughout the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and now well into the new millennium, the one thing we know is that it works. And what is it that works? What is it that we do with kids? He said three things. But we relate to them deeply and richly. We have a lot of fun with them, and we introduce them to a life of following Jesus Christ. That's what we do. It's not rocket science, but it works. He said, we relate to them. We have fun with them, and we introduce them to Jesus. And then he said, so what I'm going to share with you men for the next three days is not a new strategy, because we don't need a new strategy. What I'm going to share with you is how we can expand our ministry and are expanding it all over the world in an aggressive way so that we can share more of Jesus with more kids in the U.S., Europe, Asia, the Middle East, Mexico, South America, and wherever we can find kids. And then he and his staff went on to share over the next two days of exactly how they are on an aggressive campaign raising over $100 million to help this awesome youth organization. And some of you have already guessed the name. It's called Young Life continue their unprecedented work with youth throughout the whole world. And as I sat there listening to this man talk about young life, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, all of a sudden a bunch of very disparate thoughts that I've been having about our church came together. All of a sudden a bunch of thoughts that have been way out here, that have been kind of complex and confusing to me, came together in a moment of simplicity and profundity. Now, let me explain. You see, for the first... Five years of my journey with all of you here at SBC. I got to tell you, there isn't a week that goes by in which I don't ask myself this question: What is it that makes SBC SBC? In other words, I'm trying to exegete my church. What is it that makes this place special? What is it that makes us usable and moldable in the hands of God? And I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been in a real reflecting year in which, for the last six months, as we've been celebrating 50 years, we've been remembering and reflecting even more. And so as we brought pastors back to speak and had a journey of worship and done prayer emphases and service projects, I've been asking myself even more, what is it that makes SBC SBC and even what's next for our church? But what do we need to do now to poise ourselves for the next 50 years of ministry should the Lord carry And as I sat there a few weeks ago in Colorado listening to this leader talk about his beloved youth organization, it hit me that in a similar way, what SBC has been doing here for the last 50 years, it could easily be said it works. That's what hit me, It works. I mean, clearly, and this isn't bragging, I think this is just being honest about what God has done, He has blessed us as a church. That we have seen... Hundreds of people come to Christ uh, since opening our doors 50 years ago. In fact, just this last year, this last ministry year, we baptized over 200 people that have made decisions for Jesus Christ. That work continues on. We have seen thousands of people grow in their understanding of God through Jesus and repent of their sin and forge a better marriage and get honest with their finances and begin to use their gifts and passions to selflessly serve others all in the same while drawing closer to Jesus Christ. We have seen that. We have sent literally hundreds of people into the mission field over the years, to the point that we now have thriving works in Africa, the Middle East, Asia, Mexico, Europe, and certainly here in the U.S. In fact, this year we will nudge up against 40 short-term mission trips in which we have sent hundreds to the mission field on short-term trips just this year. And we've planted lots of churches in the valley. We think of the big ones like Desert View or North, but we planted seven churches in the last 20 years that all in their own way are doing really well here in the valley. And so much more. So whether you call it Come, Grow, Go, as Daryl did, or Win, Build, Send, as I like to refer to it, it's the same thing. It's simply living out the Great Commission in the setting that God puts you in, and when you do so faithfully and His Spirit blesses you, it works. And it worked well, I might add. Also, what has hit me recently, and this is what I want to share with you, is that just like the youth organization, Young Life, that doesn't necessarily need to reinvent a bunch of new values in order to have greater impact, but simply realize what values they do well and now commit to aggressively expanding those, what hit me is SBC doesn't need to necessarily reinvent anything in our 50th year. No, what we need to do is to continue to realize what God has blessed over the years and then commit to aggressively expanding that and building upon the strengths that He's already given us. And so to use an athletic analogy, it's like somebody with the Olympics coming up that knows that they're a really good swimmer, but by default aren't really good at shot put. That's the idea. Churches tend to be fairly good at certain things. God makes churches in all different shapes and sizes. And they tend to be good at different things. We are good at a few things as a church. And God has blessed that over the years. And what's hit me is that what we need to do now moving forward is to hone and honor those values and strengths and maybe then introduce a few new ones. And then let's move on as we expand our influence here in the valley and here in the world. So that's what I want to talk about over the next six weeks here at our church. I'm going to take three weeks to cement the values that have made us us, and then I'm going to take three weeks to talk to you about at least one unsung hero of our church, a hidden value that we don't talk about very much, that I think is going to be critical as we move forward and expand our influence. So three weeks talking about who we are, three weeks talking about what we can become. And I think it's going to be quite a series for us here at our church. After that, I go on vacation for a couple weeks, and when I come back, we're going to start the book of Romans. And we're going to spend the rest of the year talking from Romans 1-5 through 5, uh, about our identity in Christ. So, those of you high control people who know, need to know what we're doing, that's it. That's the rest of the year. But I'm very excited about this vision series that we're starting here today. So, with that said, let's pray. Father God, I thank you that uh, you so many different ways, certainly and primarily through your word. But God, as I realized a few weeks ago, even when I get on retreats and get away for a few days from my normal environment, you tend to speak to my spirit as well. And God, I thank you that as I've been asking myself about what it is that makes SBC, SBC, that you've helped give me clarity on that, that we can flesh out over the next few weeks. And then, Lord, uh, even what we need to move forward, you've helped us with that as well. So God, I pray you give us tender hearts, uh, ready wills in order to act and follow on what you share. And Lord, make us all glad that in this hot month of June that we stay here in the valley and certainly, Lord, uh, tune in to what you're doing in this beloved church of the So speak to us now, we pray. So I want to talk to you about two values this morning, then one next week, and then one the following week, three weeks to cover four values that are very dear to us as a church. And as I move into these first two values, I want to ask you a loaded question. It might seem like a simple question, but I'm telling you, a lot of Christians can't answer the question I'm about to ask you, and it's this, why do we come to church Sunday after Sunday? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we gather in this place, and then right now over in our venue across campus, why do we gather Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, year after year, as a church in this place? Why do we meet? Because you see, the answer to this question nudges us right up against two of the top values that make us who we are as a church. Look up here on the screen. And they are transformational Bible teaching – to be transformed by God's Word and to engage Him in holy worship. And these are the two primary reasons, in case you've ever wondered, why we have worship services and why we meet here week after week. To be transformed by the inside out, by God's truth as found in His Word, and then to respond to Him, to engage Him in worship with our hearts as we focus on Him in truth. And so consider each one of these separately. First, consider the value of transformational Bible teaching. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open up to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. We're going to look at one verse, but we're going to to deeply understand this verse right now in the next 10 minutes. Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. And as you're turning there, I'm also going to put the Scripture up on the screen. We're going to park here for a few minutes. This is a very, very profound verse. In fact, somebody shared with me right after the last service. They said, this verse changed my life as a young woman. When I finally understood what this verse was saying, my life was never the same. And that's exactly the way it should be. So look at what it says, Romans 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good. And acceptable and perfect. Now, notice with me two key things this passage tells us that we must do, believe it or not, it's a do oriented passage, in order to experience the benefits of God's Word transforming our hearts and our minds. First, notice that it tells us that we must make a choice to be transformed rather than conformed. It tells us that we need to make a choice. Some of you are saying, where is that? Well, look at how it begins there. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Even in the English translation, that shines through. It's a command. It's actually in the imperative mood. In the original language that this was written in, it's simply saying, make a choice. Do not conform, but make a choice to be transformed. It's commanding us to do this. And so break those two things down. Obviously, it's telling us to not conform to this world. The logic is simple. This world has fallen. It's not our home. So don't conform to its way of thinking, behaving, and feeling. It's fascinating. That Greek word there translated here, conformed, is the Greek word sous schematizo," where we get our English word schematic from. You engineers will like this. And it literally means to conform to the same pattern of. So a schematic is a set of drawings that you can form something to. And here in the negative, it's saying that if this world has its own set of drawings, if this world itself is its own schematic and all of its fallenness and goofiness, then as followers of Christ, we do not conform to that schematic. That we do not pattern our lives after what we see around us. We don't just watch Oprah and do what she says. We don't watch a PBS special and do what it says. We don't read your New York Times bestseller book and just by very nature say, isn't that great, and do what it says. No, we're more consciously thinking than that. But we don't want to conform to the pattern of this world because God has said this world has fallen and it's not our home. And so the first thing that we need to do when it comes to making a choice, is to make, if you will, a negative choice. Larry Crabb says it this way, before you can attach, you need to detach. We make a negative choice to say that I'm not going to conform any longer. I'm going to be more intentional than that when it comes to the choices of this world. And this affects, by the way, the entertainment mediums that you choose or don't choose, the language that you choose or don't choose, how you vote, how you use your money, how you respond to others, how you portion your time. Even what kind of visceral feeling response you're going to have to the things around you. All of it's in play when it comes to the idea of you choosing not to conform to the world around you. And once you make that choice, what do you do? Well, the other side of it is you choose then to be tra- transformed. You choose to be transformed. Or maybe look at it this way. You choose to put yourself in the pathway. We'll talk about what we need to do in a second here. Into the pathway of God's amazing grace, and through, as we're going to see, renewing your mind, be transformed into His way of thinking and His way of understanding your life, this world, and the kingdom of God in your midst. You choose to be transformed. And that word, some of you have heard this it before, is the Greek word metamorphou, where we get our English word metamorphosis from. And it literally means to be completely changed, to be astoundingly that's the idea of transformation. It means that you were one thing before, but now, when it comes to your actions, your thoughts, and your feelings, you are a different person. It's actually a powerful word in the New Testament. It's only used a few times. But in one of the contexts used in the Gospels, it has nothing to do with inner transformation. It talks about what happened with Jesus when He went up on the mountain and was transfigured before the three disciples. So look at Matthew 17, verse 2. This is kind of a good image. It says that He, Jesus, was transfigured, same word translated transformed in Romans 12, transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became as white as light. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus was totally changed in bodily appearance before the disciples there. They got a little glimpse of His glory and who He is behind His humanity, mainly, mainly fully God. He was transfigured before them. And what Romans is doing, what Paul is doing in his passage in Romans, is now saying on an inner level, what you saw happen with Jesus on the mountain is what can happen with you. You can become completely different than the person you are now as you start to do the things I'm going to talk about in a second. So I like how John Stott, when he was alive, he died last year at the age of 90-something. John Stott, the great Anglican pastor, says in his commentary in Romans, this is great, He says, "...a complete change came over Jesus. His whole body became translucent. As for the change which takes place in the people of God is a fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ Himself." So simply see. We're just ramping up here. The issue is one of choice. Are you going to choose to be conformed, which is your default state, by the way, Uh, when it comes to this world? Or are you going to consciously choose to say no to that and I want to be transformed into the image of Christ? And for those who choose to be transformed, then you're ready for the second key thing that Romans 12.2 tells us. And this is the linchpin for transformation. And that is that we must renew our minds according to His Word. Or to put it in point form from your outline, we would say it like this, God's truth transforms lives. It empowers us to think and to feel and to act differently. And that's what Romans 12, 2 is leading us to. The fact that once you choose to be transformed, the pathway for that is to now understand God's truth and revelation to us, and having this go into our minds and eventually into our heart and our behavior, we start to renovate our souls in such a way that we are changed. Wow. And this week in my study, I looked up that word mind in the original language, Romans 12, 2 here. And you know what that word literally means? It means your mind. Really good translation here. It means your cognitive ability, your rational thinking. It means your head.
1: And the idea here
0: is that as you renew your head, as you renew your thinking, you start to renovate your heart, and your life. That word renewal there literally means to renovate. It pictures demolishing the old and building the new. So it means you gut the kitchen, the living room, the bedroom, the basement of your mind, and erect new structures. It means learning to think now as a follower of Jesus Christ. And when understood in the light of the rest of Jesus' teaching, we realize that the way we do that is through His Word. That Jesus says, Not an iota will pass away from my word. That is His word and the word of the Old Testament and all the scriptures that renew us in our thinking. The Bible's truths, don't miss this, studied on our own, as well as heard in times of relevant, responsible, practical teaching, literally have the power to renew our minds, which then can transform our lives. That's why we call our value transformational Bible teaching. You know, it's fascinating. Um, I, I love hate relationship like some of you do with modern-day psychology. I think some of what psychology teaches is spot on, and other stuff that it teaches is just like, gosh, I can't believe they thought that. And, and one of the things that modern-day psychology pretty much teaches across the board, I think really affirms uh, this passage here when psychologists will tell you that the way they try to go about changing their clients is through this. Look up here on the screen. And that is right thinking that leads to right behaving that leads to right feeling. It's called a cognitive behavioral approach to change. And though there are other schools, most psychologists would tell you that this is by and large the way they try to get their patients to change. That if they can deal with their thinking capacity and all the hurt and stuff that they've gone through in their thinking and get them to think more rightly about this world and themselves and others, that that can then lead to right choices, right behaving, that in the long run will lead to right feelings, which is what most people want in the end. And I have found, folks, that over time, with lots of practice, it many times does work this way, not exclusively, and there's other ways, but but by and large, I think this is right, and I think this is what Romans 12 is saying. That God begins with our minds. He begins with changing our thinking. That over time then will lead to right choices. As Romans 12 says, that you may discern what is right. And then it leads to right feelings. That you start to get that peace and that purpose that God so wants you to have in your life. And the only caveat I would give is that it just doesn't come quick. It takes time. In fact, one could argue it takes a lifetime in order to be transformed at this level. I've told you a story before, so I don't need to go into great detail on it, but you know, when I was a young man in seminary back in the middle 80s, I I had so much anxiety in me from many things growing up and issues in my life that I went to seminary and thought, I don't have any conception on how I could be a pastor someday. I really did. I was just a ball of mess. I was angry. I was hurt. I had anxiety and depression and I'm suddenly to be a minister. And I thought, this is going to be a train wreck waiting to happen. And one of the things that I did at that time was started to seek some help through pastoral influences, even through counseling. And one of the things that people shared with me back then is exactly this, Romans 12, 2, and the whole idea of, uh, of right thinking, right behaving, right feeling. And, and they said, Jamie, you have a lot of stinking thinking going on inside of you. Man, you just you think often, you just have all these thoughts about the world and yourself and all this negative stuff, you know, and no wonder you're a mess. And folks, listen to me. Throughout most of the 90s, as an associate pastor of all of mess, I spent most of my time trying to undo a lot of stinking thinking and trying to renew my mind according to the Word of God. And there were times where I thought, boy, this isn't coming very quick. And I still feel like a mess, and I don't know if it's ever going to come. And I, I get so discouraged. But it was fascinating to watch my journey in the 90s slowly over time, as I hung in there with God and renewed my mind day after day with His Word, over time it started to take place. And I look back now and I see a slow but sure transformation that occurred in my character, that occurred in my life, that allowed me to become the kind of father, the kind of husband, the kind of minister, the kind of friend that God wanted me to be. But it all went back to Romans Here's my point. I know this works for you as well. You and I were having a cup of coffee today, for those of you who are veteran Christians, that are seen as mature by the rest of us, and I said, tell me about a defining moment where God changed you. Almost surely it would come down to this idea that He used His Word to somehow change the way that you think about the world around you, and then you started to obey Him, and then you started to get peace and purpose in your soul. You became the man or woman that God wants you. It's one of the highest values of our church. We are transformed when we rightly rally and teach His Word. And anything happened the other day, right before I left my trip, I was in IHOP with my wife, Kim. IHOP, for those of you who don't know, is International House of Pancakes. We do not eat there very often because it's like a carb fest, but once in a while, my trainer says I'm allowed a reward meal. And last year I had a reward year, so I'm trying not to do that again. And I was having a reward meal at IHOP right before I left in, in, in May, and, and it was just a fascinating experience. I was there with Kim, and after we got done eating, the waitress came up to me, and I said, we're ready for our bill now, and she said, um, uh, your bill's been paid for. It happens every once in a while. It's a very touching thing. Uh, Andy Stanley points out that it never happens in the apple store, but it does happen every once in a while. <laughs> and... Uh, where, where as a pastor, you're in a place in a community and somebody just decides to, to, to pay the tab for you. And it's a touching thing. And again, it happens once in a while. So I said, could you tell me who the pe- person was so I can go thank him or her? And she said, well, it was a lady. And, and she was just somebody else, but she already left. She wanted to remain anonymous. But she gave me this note to give to you. So I was sitting there with Kim, and I, and I took a piece of paper out. I have it right here. And on the outside, it just said, Pastor. And uh, I opened it up, and it's not signed. I opened it up, and it simply said, You're changing my life. Thank you. That was it. You're changing my life. Thank you. Yeah, praise the Lord. Now, let me tell you how I took this, because this is very important. I don't know. Maybe I've met this person. I I don't think I did, because usually my friends, one, would not buy me uh, dinner like that, and they would usually tell me if they did. So I'm guessing that I've not met this person. I'm guessing that I've not done pastoral counseling with her. I'm guessing that I didn't do one of her children's weddings or a, a, a parent's funeral or something like that. I'm guessing that she worships here on Sunday morning or on Sunday evening. I'm guessing that she sits under the teaching of this church. I'm guessing that she's heard us talk as a community of faith out of Philippians or Esther or Jonah or Ruth or 1st or 2nd John or 1st or 2nd Peter, the books that we've taught in the last five. And I'm guessing that somehow God, because He is so good, when His word is lifted up, is speaking to her heart and mind, and is changing her from the inside out. And so I believe that so strongly that I took this note at that time and I folded it up and I put it in my wallet. And I pulled it out a couple times when I've been discouraged or when I needed a boost, and I've read it, and I've just said, Lord, I don't need to ever know anything. I don't need to have all the pews filled. I don't need to have the biggest church in town. I don't need to have a budget. All I need to know is that you are changing your people one by one. And if that's happening, then my gosh, think about what we have to offer this community. Think about the expanded influence we can have as we move on in the next 50 years to the Lord Terry with just this one value of saying that God can transform His people from the inside out when it comes to His Word, rightly understood and rightly taught. This is why Gospel Bible meets. This is why we are a Bible-teaching church and unashamed about it. Because we believe His Word has the power to change the course of a human life, the trajectory of a human heart. And we believe that so strongly that we will continue to teach this book as we're going to enter into Romans at in the middle of the summer so that we can renew our minds to be able to think and feel and act. More like God wants us to. I can't wait to hear story after story of continued transformation. Now, there's one more reason that we meet here, however, another value that I want to cover this morning before we go to the table of why we gather as a church. And then next week we're just going to do one value and one value in the week after that. But this one's tied so closely to this first one as far as our gathering as a church, and it's the value of engaging worship. Now, I should walk carefully here, but I'm not going to. I just got to say that right now. Worship is still kind of a funny issue for church people. I don't get it. The music thing, I know, messes everything up for a lot of you, and so we're going to talk about that here in a second. But to get you thinking about what worship is and its importance, I want you to look up here on on the screen to a video that Troy picked out for us this week So blame Troy. It's a video that Troy picked out for us this week that I think you're going to like. We'll actually get you thinking a little bit about worship. And then after you watch this, we're going to talk about worship for a few minutes before we go to the table. So look up here on the screen. Okay. Yep, that's good. So, let's make sense of this. In the Old Testament, when God first wanted to communicate to humanity His desire to be worshipped, He used a Hebrew word that occurs over about 200 times in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word shaka. And it literally means this. It means to stoop, to bend, to fall prostrate, or to kneel. It carries with it a twofold idea. You don't want to miss this. That you offer yourself fully and openly to the one that you are approaching. And to show that you're offering yourself fully and openly, you don't mind bending the knee to that person or thing. So this is why the Christians, by the way, got in so much trouble in the first century. Because they understood worship. They understood this idea of kneeling before God and giving Him your all, and yet, Nero wanted the same kind of worship. The government wanted the same kind of worship, literally kneeling before them. And they said no. And they said, well, if you don't worship Nero, then you will die. And they chose to, many of them, die. But they understood worship. It's said, you have offering yourself fully and wholly to another and showing it through humility and submission. So this is why Psalm 95, verse 6 says this, "Oh, come, let us worship and bow down, Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So let us draw close to God, fully having our sights set on Him, and then on bended knees surrender to Him. Do you see that? That's what worship is. And worship is such a full-orbed activity that God wants that from you each moment of each day, right? He wants it when you're cutting hair. He wants it when you're doing business. He wants it when you're on the mission field. He wants it when you're watching TV. He wants a worshipful spirit every moment of every day from us. And when we gather together as a church, now don't miss this, one of the key things we're trying to help you do is get ready for the week by having a worship time together where we recenter ourselves and our sights on Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? We want to teach the Word so that we can be transformed, but then we want to give you a chance to respond to God by worshiping Him in the fullness of who He is, setting the tone for the rest of your week so that what happens on Sunday matters on Monday. So here's a question I get quite often when I talk about worship, and this is an honest question. It's not a heretical question, though it's one that deserves an answer, and it's the question, well, then why do we have to sing songs? In other words, Jamie, I mean, why do we have music and singing? I mean, I don't really like that part of the worship. In fact, quite frankly, I come late to that part of the worship. I just want to get on to the meat of the Word. Why do we have to sing songs, particularly songs that I might not like? Let me wrestle with this with you for a minute. Here's, let me begin by making it very clear that we don't provide music in church for your entertainment. Could I be really clear on that? We're not doing this entertain You've got satellite radio. you got your own CDs. you got shows. you got concerts. I mean, all that you want to go to for entertainment. Six days, 22 and a half hours other than church. We're not providing music here for your entertainment. Now, let me be clear. It might be entertaining for you if you happen to like the style of the musicians. That's all good and fine. But our primary purpose for having worship music Is not so that you would say, I really like that song, wasn't that great? That's not the reason we have it. No, our reason, now don't miss this, is a much more rich theological purpose, deeply rooted in what God says about worship, praise, and music in His Word. Now let me explain. If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Psalm 150 right now. Psalm 150 is literally halfway through the entire Bible. You can see halfway through, it's the last psalm in all the psalms. Psalm 150. And as you're turning there, remember our definition of worship. Worship is simply looking fully to God and bowing to His will, shakah. And then let me give you another Hebrew word. I'm not going to give you a Hebrew word, but it's translated praise. Praise is different from worship. Praise, as we all know, means to lavish worth or commendation upon another. So if you praise your dog for not going to the bathroom inside, you're lavishing worth upon your dog saying, good job. If you praise your kid or grandkid for the grades they get, you're lavishing worth on them saying, good job. And we are to praise God for who He is and what He does. We are to lavish worth on God, now don't miss this, so that it would help us worship. We praise God so that we might worship Him. So look at the first two verses of Psalm 150. It tells us this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. So in a psalm on worship, all the psalms are helping us worship, it's telling us here that praise exists to help us worship. I'll show you all this in a second, I'll fits together, but for right now, simply see that praise is a subset of worship. Give me your head now that you get that. Praise exists to help you worship God, which is the end goal. Now, where does music come in? Ha! Music is a tool to help us praise. End of story. And as a tool, it's relatively amoral, meaning that there are all different styles, neither style is right or wrong. It's just that music is a tool to help us praise. How do we know this? Look at the rest of the psalm. Isn't this interesting? It says, praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with a lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So if you ever thought about whether a word like with is important? See it now. Right? Because that's what's telling us the purpose of music. That music is exists solely to help you praise, and that helps you worship. So, you may click here. Here's how it looks. Worship is the end goal. Praise is a subset of worship. Music is a subset of praise. So the music that we have exists for one reason and one reason only. and That's to allow you to praise God so that you might worship Him. It's not for your entertainment, though if that happens, that's a nice byproduct of it, but it's so that you might engage God in holy praise, so that you might set the tone for the week and worship Him. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions. I'm a lawyer's kid, so I always think, what's the pushback here? I've been it for years. First pushback is, what if I don't like the music? I know it's hard to think that Christians might say that, but some do. They say, what if I don't like the music? What's the answer to that question, by the way? Go to another church and find music you do like? Come late for worship and skip the music? Well, what's the answer to that? The answer is simple. <laughs> Praise Him anyways. I mean, think about it. When I first got saved, the year was 1981, and I was 17 years old, and before I became a Christian, the only music I ever listened to was Kiss the Rolling Stones, Beatles, and Led Zeppelin. That's what I listened to back in the 70s. My dad didn't care what I did. And so I listened to all kinds of music. I was a rock and roll junkie before I got saved. And then when I became a Christian, I went out to college and I started attending a little Baptist church in Hillsdale, Michigan called College Baptist Church. And this was way before the days of any contemporary music. I mean, contemporary back then was Amy Grant. That's all we had. And they didn't allow that stuff in church to save their lives. So when I would go to church, I would hear music on an instrument that I'd never heard of before called an organ. And they were singing songs that were 300 years old. I feel like I walked into a time machine or something like that. Because there I am in church singing hymns to an organ. And yet, even at the age of 18 at that time, and I mean this sincerely, I didn't care. I mean, my security brothers say, what would you do this morning? I went to church. I had to go to church because I love Jesus. Let me tell you about Him. And, and, and I tell them about and, and I go to church, and I learned all the hymns at College Baptist Church in Hillsdale, Michigan. And I learned to love them and I learned to worship Him. You know, i raise your hands back then. Promise keepers had not come by yet. But I would at least want to lift my hands in worship. And I'd give my heart to Him. And I learned all the hymns in those early days. Now, here's my point. If an 18-year-old punk kid who just came to Christ and had been listening to Kiss all of his life can learn to worship God through 300-year-old songs done to an instrument that nobody ever uses anymore today, then certainly all of us can take whatever style is delivered up in church, whether it's your song or not, and choose to worship Him. Amen? I mean, it's just true. Some of you aren't clapping. It's just true. And again, please know, we try to give you a style that you like here at Casta Bible Church. One of the biggest changes we made in the last five years, and you guys know this, is that we went to divergent styles of worship. We start today very traditional. This is our blended service. Next hour will be what I call unapologetically contemporary, and then we'll end the day with like blow-you-out-of-the-water contemporary. And so we kind of go throughout the day from Bach to rock. That's our style right now. And we do that because we don't want music to be an issue. Have you noticed this on the screen here? Music is way down the food chain when it comes to God's priorities. God sees music as something to foster praise, to foster worship. So why is it important that you and I give our hearts to God during the music portion? Why is it important that we don't skip the music portion? Because He wants you to worship Him. And He loves you so much. And He wants your heart all week long. that He wants you to worship Him. And again, I had somebody the other day, a very honest brother in Christ, say to me when I was running this line, he said, well, it's not just the particular music I don't like. I just don't like to sing at all, Jamie. It's just not my thing. So isn't it okay that I come late for church? I just don't like to sing. And I said, No, of course not. Of course, that's not okay. I mean, honestly, think about what you learned when you were five. When when you didn't like the vegetables being served to you during dinner, did you say, You know what, Mom? I just don't like these vegetables. So I think I'm just going to skip these. I'll come halfway through dinner and eat the meat, but I'm just not going to eat these vegetables. What did your mom say? <laughs> sit down, Junior. Sit down and eat your vegetables because they're good for you. And over time, you just might learn to like them. Some of you say, well, I'm 55 and I still don't like vegetables. But you eat them. And you've learned to eat them in all different kinds of ways. In fact, some of you like vegetables right now, you think that like fried onion rings are a good form of vegetables. But at least you're eating them. And the reality is, is that as Christians, now tell me this isn't just maturity, but we need to learn to come on time Worship God because it's not about us, it's not about the music, it's about Him. And as we give our hearts to Him in worship, not, not get this, He will bless you. you Everything that one psalm where it said, I'm glad I went to the house of the Lord, I'm glad I went to the house of the Lord. You guys are clapping mood today. Get it out, get out. All right, good, all right. Last question, and with this, we're done. We'll go to the table here. What if I don't like to be expressive? You know, promise keepers did change everything, Jamie. Everybody lifts hands and worship now. And, you know, I was raised Presbyterian, and we don't do that. And so, you know, what if I don't like to be expressive? Oh my gosh, that's just fine. Isn't it? You, you know, one of the, I, I'm an ordained Baptist minister. You guys don't know that. Because I don't ever tell anybody. My kids don't even know that. But I'm an ordained Baptist minister. That's what was my ordination. And uh, I got tell you, when I first became an ordained Baptist minister, it would have been like, if I had ever raised my hands in worship, it would be like, oh my gosh, you just denied the resurrection. I mean, it was just not something you did. And, and I remember, again, I, took, I joke about promise keepers. Promise keepers was the first event I ever went to where I had an Episcopalian next to me lifting hands in worship. I thought I feel like I'm in heaven. I mean, this is amazing. And so all of us lifted our hands in worship at promise keepers and came back and we started, we did a halfway measure in church, right? You know, you kind of get like this. And, and now even a Bible church like Scottsdale Bible, now don't miss this, has a mix of people in it. Have you noticed that? And that's so cool. I mean, as I've said before, lifting hands in holy worship doesn't make you holy. If it's an expression of your heart, then praise God, literally. But I know there's times where I'm lifting hands in worship and I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch. That's not worship. I, I, I mean, it's easy to fake it until you make it. And so that's not worship. And there's other times where I know people are worshiping like this, but they're singing the songs and I see a tear on their face and I know that they're engaged with their hearts are tender before Him. It's not about body posture. We need to be freed up there to be who God made you to be in that moment. It's about whether your heart and your mind are open to Him and whether you are disciplining yourself to engage Him through the music in praise so that you might worship God. We're going to give you a chance to practice this as we go into communion right now. We thought long and hard about this service. And Troy, who loves you, is such an awesome worship leader in so many, many ways. You guys are clapping, yeah. Troy specifically asked if we could uh, have a time of worship and praise through communion and then even afterwards. So if ever you don't leave, like, you know, right at at communion, please don't leave now. We ask you just to, to, to stay and to engage in communion, which is worship, and then afterward, Troy's got a little bit of a worship package for us that we might respond to God. The Reformers set the tone here 500 years ago. They said that, that gathered worship is all about worship and the Word. Worship and the Word. Transformational Bible teaching. Engaging God in worship. We're just getting started. Those are the two values that have made us who we are as a church that we commit to as we move forward. If the servants come forward to service communion, would you bow with me and let's pray and we're going to enter into our time of worship. Father, I thank You that You have seen fit to reveal Yourself to us in the living Word, Jesus Christ, Your Son, our Savior. And in the written Word, the Bible, so that we might understand cogently who You are and what You want from us. And Lord, we've seen that what You want from us is to engage You with our minds by allowing Your Word to transform us. And that, Lord, we are to respond back Worship. We love you, and respond to you for what you have done and for who you are. So, God, to go to the communion table now. May we receive these elements for that which they are intended to worship you and all of your crucifixion, your resurrection, the atonement, the forgiveness of sin. So, we lift up our hearts and our minds to.